We have um, two readings today. So the first one is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. So, yeah, page 572 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have um, a Bible or would like to take that one, you're most welcome to do that. That's our gift to you. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then again to uh, the book of Philemon, which is our um, text for three weeks. So we read the whole book because it's uh, also so short. Um, so the letter of Paul to Philemon. So uh, page 580, and you may want to keep that open for when Josh is speaking to us. So Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have de derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, 
Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Roz. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> in the 14th century... The English writer, Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, wrote in his, t in his tale of Melaby, English teacher in the front right here, <laughs> that men saying that overgreet homeliness engendereth disparange. Sound familiar? I'll say it again just in case. Overgreet homeliness engendereth disparange. All right, all right. So in case you don't still read Middle English... Let's break it down. Overgreet, uh, overgreat, or too much. Homeliness, like homeliness, uh, familiarity. Engendereth, engenders, uh, breeds. And disparange is to dispraise or to show contempt. So, in modern English, familiarity breeds contempt. See, if you knew too much about it, you'd just be like, yeah, I know that saying already. Because <laughs> familiarity breeds contempt. Is that right? Is it right that the closer you get to someone or something, the more you find out about things that you don't like, and so the more you grow to dislike that thing or person? Is that true? Well, it might be. Particularly if we focus on the bad qualities of that someone or something as we discover them and we allow those qualities to crowd out anything good that we might know or discover about that other person. So what if I rephrase the question a little and say, should that be true of Christian relationships? Should it be the case that familiarity breeds contempt within the Christian church? Well, I'll leave that with you for now. 
As Scott said, we're continuing in our series on Philemon today, exploring what it is for the church to be family. I hope you've found opportunities during the week uh, to thank God when you remembered each other in your prayers and that you were encouraged, built up, refreshed even in your relationships as you shared your faith together throughout the week. Last week, we reviewed the opening seven and last three verses of this short letter. And today we pick up at verse 8. And we're going to go through to verse 16, uh, digging in a bit into what church's family looks like as we consider family love. As we go, I'm going to reference three broad headings, which, as with last week, form a, a sentence. Um, and they are, <clears throat> when driven by Christ's love, brother, sister, and slave are without distinction. So, as we go, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your family. God, we thank you that you draw your family together, that you hold it together by your love. Father, we are grateful for you that you do that. And God, we pray that as we gather today, as we read from your word, as we consider it and apply it to our hearts, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to it, that we would be drawn deeper together and deeper into a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first point, when driven by Christ's love. Well, as you would have seen, as you read it this morning, our passage this week starts with the word accordingly. And when we see a word like that in Scripture, it should cause us to go back and review what we've just read so that we can properly understand what we are about to read. So as we saw last week, Paul opens his letter with a wide and inclusive sweep of the family of God, men and women, Jews and Greeks, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church that gathered at Philemon's house was connected with the wider Christian community and they became a tangible expression of the unity that is expressed in Galatians 3, 26 to 28, which reads, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons, that is, heirs, of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for, you are, or for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That's the unity that is presented. And then, of course, Paul turned his attention and directed his words to Philemon himself, describing what he'd heard of Philemon's love for the Christians in Colossae, a love that he described as refreshing their hearts, a love born out of Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus. And in verse 7, Paul encouragingly describes how he himself had received much joy and comfort even in his imprisonment as a result of hearing of his brother's love back in Colossae. And so it's this love that Paul draws on when he says accordingly in verse 8. So let's read those first couple of verses. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. 
I appeal to you for my child. It's on the basis of the love expressed by Philemon that Paul makes his appeal. And, as we see in verse 9, Paul's appeal is also for the sake of that love. Interesting turn of phrase. It seems Paul wants to maintain, to demonstrate, to ensure that the love for the saints in Christ is held in high regard. Paul wants to refer back to that love being the driver and he wants to make sure that love is held up. Now, if you've read many of Paul's other letters, you may have noticed a key difference in the way in which Paul introduces himself in this letter. Interestingly, he does not rely expressly on his apostolic authority to make his appeal. At least not directly. He identifies that he could. He says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, and as the apostle to the Gentiles, and as someone who had demonstrated his God-given responsibility and ability to provide clear and frank direction about how to follow and live for Christ, Paul could have simply told Philemon what he was supposed to do. But he doesn't. Rather, he describes himself as an old man. Not only an old man, but an old man who is now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, as he introduced himself in verse 1 as well. Paul is in chains for the gospel. And it is from this low position that he makes his appeal to Philemon on behalf of one of the lowest members of society, a slave or a bondservant, as has been translated. Now, right from the outset, who does that remind you of? Well, Jesus himself, of course. The one who the gospel points to, the one who Paul sought to proclaim through that gospel. Jesus is described in Colossians chapter 1, from verse 15, as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn or heir of all creation, the one that created all things, the one that all things were created for, and the one who continues to sustain all things. Jesus is described as the one in whom all the fullness of God Almighty was pleased to dwell. Yet, Despite Jesus being the preeminent being in the universe, Jesus himself said, as recorded by Mark, in Mark chapter 10, 42 to 44, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, as we'll see in Daniel, when Jag gets back, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ, the greatest of all, came to be the servant of all, to give his life to pay the ransom for many. For all who would repent and believe and live of their life, sorry, repent of their life lived apart from God and believe in Him, trust in Him, and accept Christ's work on the cross for themselves. A free gift 
taking the punishment and wrath of God on himself that God's people deserved and that you and I deserve. Without the forgiveness of Christ that he offers, we stand condemned before God. Guilty, as we've sung about this morning. Paul knew so deeply that his freedom, of his freedom in Christ that he would proclaim the good news of Jesus, the gospel, even if it landed him in prison. And of course it did on a number of occasions, and that's where he is now. And it's from this vantage point that Paul appeals to Philemon, which ultimately is, as we'll see next week, an appeal to forgive. So in the context of this letter, Paul and Philemon are friends. They're brothers. They're dear to each other. And Paul does not desire to make Philemon do anything without his consent. As he says in verse 14, in order that Philemon's goodness might not be by compulsion, but on its own accord. It really would make no sense, would it, for Paul himself to be imprisoned willingly for the gospel and then to go on to enforce his authority and, and make Philemon forgive his bondservant, simply driving Philemon to uh, empty legalism as a result, after all of what Paul is trying to demonstrate. Effectively, it would be like the parents standing over there arguing children, pointing down and saying, Stop your fighting! Now, say sorry. Say it. Good. All right, it's finished. All right? With everyone going their own way, still as grumpy as ever, the dispute definitely not resolved and likely to pop up again very soon. Of course, wielding a heavy hand is not a wise way to train the heart of a child. Enforcing compliance in such a way fails to demonstrate the apparent um, love that is being encouraged, though clearly not being demonstrated in that circumstance, and may in fact end up counterproductive in the long run. But unlike the unruly child, Paul knows that there is a reality of Christ's love already being outworked in Philemon's life, doesn't he? We see that in verses 5 and 7. And Paul would teach elsewhere that the follower of Christ was not saved by good works, by doing the right thing, by following the rules. It was and is saving faith in Christ that does that. But good works, in response to what Christ has done for them, through his free gift of salvation, present the evidence of genuine faith in the Lord, as we considered in James chapter 2. And it is on this that Paul relies. Not on force of command, not on rules or regulations, but through wise counsel, guided by the love of Christ, a love reflected in the family relationships within Philemon's church. Now, of course, it's important to note that this approach should also be what members of a church should look for in considering, appointing, and maintaining elders or pastors of a church too. People tasked with shepherding God's flock, God's family. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1-3, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, 
but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Church, please hold us accountable to this. Remind us of it. Help us to see when our own sin, selfish ambition, pride, or even tiredness causes us to lead in any way by the use of command rather than counsel. And of course, church, do likewise in your own engagement and encouragement with each other as the flock. Elders are an example to the flock so that the flock will do likewise. Follow Paul as he follows Christ and help us to follow Christ as well. Well, with that aside, throughout this introduction and preparation for his appeal, Paul has left so far Philemon effectively in the dark about what or who his appeal is actually about. Now, of course, we can't know for now, but I wonder if Anesimus was even in the room yet, standing there, present, as the letter was read. I mean, if the reader had a penchant for the dramatic, you can almost imagine him reading the letter, standing with the gathered church around him, looking at Philemon. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child. And he pauses for effect. Thoughts start running through Philemon's mind. This generous and loving uh, man. What child? Who is it? Who can I help? What do they need? How can I do it? And so the reader goes on. For my child, Anesimus, whose father I became in in my imprisonment. As Anesimus, the runaway slave, walks into the room. Or maybe it was Anesimus himself that read the letter, with Philemon having to wait and wonder about what his close friend, mentor and partner in the gospel was going to say. As the opening words and lines of the letter are read out, as he watches his runaway slave stand and read Paul's message, or at least stand by the person that reads it. What were the emotions that were rising up for him in that time? Well, we won't know. But however it happened, the point would have landed the subject of Paul's appeal was revealed as being Onesimus himself, Philemon's own runaway bondservant. Onesimus, who has now become a Christian through the ministry of Paul, just as Philemon had himself. In verse 19, we see that. Onesimus, who Paul was now describing as his spiritual child in the family of God. Philemon was here faced with a reality that his slave had become a Christian, and Paul held that that made him a part of, a brother within the church. As I mentioned last week, it seems like, well, of course, as a person, he's become a Christian, why why would he not? But calling a slave a brother, (laughs) let alone a child, your child, was pretty outrageous and a countercultural thing to say at that time. And so, that leads me to our next point. When driven by Christ's love, brother or sister and slave. Brother, sister and slave. When reading this letter in the 21st century, as we are, as with other letters that address this topic, like Ephesians, Colossians, 
or 1 Corinthians, for, exa for example, it's hard not to have your mind start to wonder, why does Paul talk so lightly, almost flippantly, about Onesimus being a slave, being a bondservant? If we have a background in the Bible, maybe it brings to mind images of Israelites being held and beaten by Egyptian slave masters, making bricks in the hot desert sun for Pharaoh. Maybe it causes you to think back over the last few hundred years, looking to the treatment of people in the Caribbean, toiling for French or English settlers to farm sugarcane, or African Americans in the USA, growing tobacco or cotton or various other things, leading, of course, to the great feats of the abolitionist movements in the 18th and 19th centuries. Some might even look to more closer references Instances in our own country in the past 70 years or so and consider the poor way that Aboriginal people were treated at times. In places like the pastoral industry. Or maybe you think about modern examples of sweatshops producing clothing, red light districts or drug running. But what is the slavery or bond servitude that was prevalent in the first century Greco-Roman period that Paul is writing about? Well, one commentator on Philemon describes slavery in this way. He says, Slavery is a perceived inferior human under the total authority of another perceived superior human. And that perceived and false reality is established by power and authority for the sake of profit for the owner and publication of the owner's wealth. He says, effectively, slavery was about status, identity, and utility. Status, bringing the slave low, bringing the owner high, labeling them, creating, uh, creating identity in those things, and then being used, used effectively as a tool. Slaves or bond servants did all manner of tasks. From farming and mining to domestic chores, they managed households, they taught the master's children, or they looked after the master's wife. Slaves even practiced medicine or musicians. They were philosophers. <laughs> they did all sorts of stuff. Some slaves were captives of war. Some were stolen and sold. Some sold themselves into bond servitude to avoid starvation. And some were born into the life on account of their parents being slaves. And within Roman society, they were non-citizens. Their roles were set within the law by their masters, as was their eating, clothing, and living arrangements. And the poorer the master, the poorer the slave. As a result, there was even a status within the social order of slave. Sinful humans will do that. If you're a valued slave of a rich city aristocrat, you are higher up the pecking order than the farm worker for a country slave owner. But regardless of where you sat within that pecking order, as a slave, you could not do anything without the permission of your owner. And if that slave attempted to leave before they had permission, they were runaways and were at the mercy of their masters as to how they should be punished. And within a system that was one of power to oppress the powerless, that would usually be by physical beating, often severely, 
sometimes by branding, so that next time people knew that this was a runaway slave, collars, as I mentioned last week, or worse, execution, and all sorts of horrible, gross things in between all of that. Even freedmen, slaves who were granted manumission by their owners, were not necessarily given full status as citizens, depending on how they came into slavery. Many freedmen still lived within the household of the master in something of bound employment, in one sense, no less constrained than before. And of course, just being granted your freedom, even with citizenship, did not mean you could survive on your own within society. There was no Centrelink office to apply for to get some assistance to get you by. Life of a slave was hard, no matter how you look at it. Now, let me be up front and say that over the course of history, since New Testament times, the church has often had a pretty despicable track record with the, with the endorsement, actually, of chattel slavery. That is, the idea that human slaves could be property and under the power of another human being. Many, in fact, pointed to Paul's deliberate non-mention of the freeing of slaves within the Christian family uh, in his letters, such as we see in Philemon, as being an endorsement of the practice. The only exception, of course, being 1 Corinthians 7.21, where Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And we looked at that. There's a sermon in our sermon archives on that chapter. As a result, many professing Christians took advantage of many people for their own personal gain over a long period of time. But it is true, as we see in our passage, that Paul does not speak of releasing Onesimus. He does not speak of freedom, at least in that sense that we see within our 21st century luxuries. Paul here was not taking a moral stand, as it were, against the social structures that incorporated slavery into them within the Roman Empire. But Paul does act counterculturally and seeks to encourage Philemon to do likewise. Rather than outright telling Philemon to simply release Onesimus, he champions a way of altering the demeaning realities that slavery created. Paul encouraged the treatment of a Christian slave as, surprise, surprise, a human being, embracing the slave as a child and a brother, creating a culture where every person would be given integrity, respect, and equal standing. Paul, through Jesus, had a greater plan than simply liberation of movement so they could go wherever they like. He had in mind a movement of liberation through the power of redemption, restoration of relationship with God that was expressed in unity in the church, in God's people. So we see throughout the New Testament teaching like this. Christians are told to love your neighbor as we love ourselves in Mark 12, 31. To do unto others as we would have them do to us in Matthew 7, 12. We read in Romans 13.10 that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Bond servants were told to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord in Colossians 3.22. 
Such a call was in fact repeated in Ephesians, where slaves were also called to obey their earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In Ephesians 6 verse 5, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Ephesians 6 verse 7, and notably, Christian masters were told to do the same. In Ephesians 6 verse 9, and of course, Christian masters were encouraged to treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In Colossians 4 verse 1, and in Ephesians 6 verse 9, to stop your threatening. Why? Well, because in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, as we read in Galatians 6.26 earlier. Sorry, 3.26. At the end of the day, the Roman engage, uh, arrangement of slavery was, above all, transactional. But if both the slave owner and the slave were Christians, and if they obeyed all of this teaching that we've just looked at, then the relationship would be radically different. It would be transformed. The social shell might remain. There would remain slaves and masters as a social, as a social institution, although with slaves taking the opportunity to be freed if it became possible. But the roles were to be so transformed by Christianity, by the Christian reality in Jesus, that if slavery within the Christian community was to persist, it was not slavery as they knew it. It was family. This would demonstrate that the gospel so transforms lives that relationships within the church are transformed too. And no doubt that would have had subsequent impact on the world around them. And so, with this in mind, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And Onesimus goes, which, if that's not evidence of genuine conversion and respect both for his master Philemon and for his father in the faith, Paul, then you know, I'm not sure what is, but, but he goes. That Paul's focus was on reconciliation I think is seen clearly in the way in which Paul acts and the way he describes Onesimus to Philemon. So in verse 11, we read, Formerly, he, that's Onesimus, was useless to you, Philemon. But now, now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Now, Paul seems to have some insight into how Philemon, at least historically, viewed Onesimus. As far as familiarity breeds contempt goes, it seems Philemon had a pretty good view of Onesimus and did not have a high view of Onesimus' usefulness as a result. Perhaps Onesimus admitted to Paul himself that he tended to be a less than helpful servant before he ran away, or maybe it was just the fact that he, was, he went AWOL that Paul um, describes Onesimus as formerly being useless to Philemon. But whatever the case, there is a clever play on words going on here. As the name Onesimus actually means beneficial or profitable. And of course, for Paul, 
Useful was, indeed, how he had become to appreciate Onesimus. An effect of his changed life as a result of the gospel preached by Paul. As Rod, Ros read for us in Colossians 3 this morning, in becoming a follower of Jesus, we put off the old self and we put on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3.10 For Paul, how Onesimus was formerly was of little consequence to him. It was his new being that drew him into deep relationship and which Paul wanted to point out to Philemon. Whether Philemon would ultimately see it or not, Paul wanted to make very clear that Onesimus was at the very least useful to him, to Paul. He says in verse 16 how it is especially to me, Paul says. Do you tend to apply useful, useless comparison when it comes to considering people? What about within the church? If you do, well, Paul, I think, gives us a good antidote to that, to that temptation in our verses from last week. I think deliberately being thankful for what we see of each other's faith will be a helpful way to keep this thinking at bay. Focusing on what Christ has done in other people's lives. Focusing our attention, therefore, on Christ. So keep going with that. But if it is a word that you tend to use in your vocabulary, maybe even work at weeding that one out. But maybe you don't use a word like this, this label on others. Maybe you consider yourself to be useless at times. If you do, please take heart from this passage. Your name may not be Onesimus. Not that that made much of a difference for him, it seems. But if you are in Christ, as he was, then you are a valued member, loved and cherished part of God's family, of our family. Know that the peace of Christ rules in your heart, that you have been called to be part of his body, and allow that to spring forth thankfulness to him. As we sing songs of praise to God together, when we gather, and as we will do further later on, allow the words of Christ that we sing to dwell in your heart, to enrich your soul. Ah, church, that we would together celebrate this as a community, that this would be our great encouragement, both to each other and to ourselves, as we see deeper growth together in useful service to God, that we might be thankful of the sharing of our faith together and that we would know the truth of what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Sister, brother, know that you are saved and adopted by the powerful indwelling work of the Spirit and you are loved and you are useful. Recognize that you have been raised with Christ and that when he appears again, you will appear with him in glory. Praise God.
And just as before, be thankful to God. As I said to others, it might use useless in a, in a way for others. Be thankful to God for the way in which you see the faith of your brothers and sisters at work around you. And let that be effective to build up your knowledge of every good thing that you share in for the sake of Christ, as we saw in verse 6 last week. Whether you're looking at others or whether you're looking at yourself as being useless, look to Christ. Be encouraged at what He has done, making you useful. Well, as we continue to see that not only did Paul consider himself the father of Onesimus in verse 10, but sending his child back to Philemon, at the risk that that was, was gut-wrenching. Sending my very heart, he says in verse 12. Paul must have had a pretty deep love and affection for Onesimus by this time. No doubt from the sustaining emotional support that he would have given the imprisoned apostle and on behalf of his good friend Philemon. But Paul is clearly speaking of a deeper love than just the practical. Paul's love flowed from a keen recognition of what it meant for Onesimus to have become a Christian. Paul himself, a Roman citizen, aware of the social order and how it worked, was deeply impacted by Onesimus' conversion and entering into family that he would call him his own son. And so I guess another thing to think about is, do we feel that deeply about people who have come to know Christ through the sharing of our faith? Is that something that we draw encouragement from? Do we have stories of people that we can be excited about ourselves? Stories of people who have come to be freed into life with Christ because we've shared the gospel with them. As a family, we can be excited to be a part of our brothers Brad and Chris here, making their own professions of faith in Christ in recent months. I'm excited to see the continual growth of each of you, my brothers and sisters here at Emmaus Road. And I'm thankful for times that I've been able to see this as people that I've been friends with have journeyed and become saved and saved from an eternity apart from God. But when I think about it, I, I really feel I have too few stories to tell. What about you? This is a challenge that we shared together in Question Time a few weeks ago. And it's one that I hope we'll continue to wrestle with and continue to persevere in and see God's kingdom grow as a result. See, while we've largely done away with formal slavery in Australia, though with some doubt remaining over a number of more questionable employment situations perhaps, have we really done away with the transactional nature of relationships that perpetuated slavery? How often do relationships within our society still revolve around what we can get out of them? Of course, the notion of mateship is something within Australian culture that is quite strong, or it's certainly around weekends like last weekend with Anzac Day, remembering the sacrifice of men and women who serve in our defence forces. But in my experience, particularly dealing with people in conflict as a lawyer or as a mediator, our society still tends to only care for each other so far as we can see advantage. Or at the very least, some definite reciprocity by the other person, particularly if we've been slighted or hurt. And look, it doesn't take much of a scroll through any streaming service to see how many TV shows and movies are based on the idea of revenge. 
But on this point, what an encouragement is the approach of Onesimus, as I mentioned earlier. As a result of his changed heart, he went back to Philemon with this letter, ready and willing to attempt to restore the relationship. Whatever that might have cost him. Reciprocity was not guaranteed. Hoped for, sure. But not required by law, nor demanded by Paul. And despite Philemon's apparent views of Onesimus as being useless in the past. In Onesimus, we see an amazing example of the one-sided love that was expressed by Christ for him while he was still a sinner. And that's something we will explore further next week as we look at family forgiveness. But we see that the reality of Paul's encouragement to Philemon remains as relevant relevant to us as ever today. There continues to be clear opportunities for restored Christian relationships to be a light of difference to a world in desperate need of light. And so I move to my final point. When driven by Christ's love, brother, sister, and slave are without distinction. Let's read on from verse 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Now, it would have been a breach of Roman law for Paul to have maintained or kept uh, Anesimus. But he could have. He could have kept him by his side and the now helpful uh, servant. Or at the very least, he could have written to Philemon from afar. But Anesimus was clearly, uh, because Anesimus was clearly an encouragement to Paul, as we saw. And despite Philemon's evidently clear love for his church, there was still a definite risk in sending Anesimus, the runaway slave, back to his master. But as we saw earlier, Paul's and it seems Anesimus' actions were motivated to make much of Christ's love, not to ensure Paul got to maintain the benefit of Anesimus' company. So whatever Philemon was to do with Anesimus in the situation, in the situation, Paul wanted it to be out of the goodness of his own heart that he made change, not by compulsion. So he sent him back. But Paul did not do so blindly. Paul clearly had a deep trust in the sovereignty of God. And in sending Onesimus back, Paul also encouraged Philemon to look at the whole situation as being within God's providential control and sovereignty. Look, Paul says, Onesimus might have run away. He might have done the wrong thing. He might have, been, he might have even betrayed your trust. You might have lost the benefit of his help for whatever that was worth to you. But look, look what God has done with that. This temporary separation from you, even if it has caused you embarrassment and loss and pain, God has worked it for great good. Look at Onesimus, my son. If Onesimus had stayed with Philemon, 
and continued to be a less than adequate uh, servant or bond servant at his tasks, who knows what might have happened to him. He may well have been sold on to someone else. Or worse, he might never have become a Christian. He may never have heard the gospel proclaimed. And this is the point Paul makes. Philemon might now be, a, 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 sorry, Anismus might now be useful as a bondservant. But the change that brought that about is of even greater importance. The temporary separation has now brought an eternity, forever, sorry, an eternal, forever togetherness. A togetherness that means Anismus is now so much more than just a bondservant. He is so much more than just a help. He is a brother. He has gone from serving at the table to having a seat at the table. The inclusiveness of the family of God might not have been directly intended to bring down the system of slavery, but when slaves became brothers and sisters with their masters and mistresses, then the system would have had to sit up and look. Paul was imprisoned for the gospel but because of the freedom that Christ gave him through the cross, he was free despite his chains. Free to love his brothers and sisters in the church and to encourage them to do likewise, without compulsion or force, and despite the apparent worldly barrier that otherwise stood between them. Slavery was a transactional arrangement of status, but the gospel flipped that on its head. The gospel created a revolutionary new way of considering people. Within the family, the transaction was completed by God through Christ. And the dignity and status between members of the family no longer had a transactional element between each other. In this way, no longer was there to be a distinction between Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, useful or useless. Dignity according to God's plan, was and is in Him. It is extrinsic. It's from the outside. It is not something that we manufacture from within ourselves. It comes from the declaration of worth stamped on us by God through Christ, which itself becomes a powerful motivator for us, a motivator for equality of the biblical kind, for compassion across human boundaries, and for morality in our interactions with each other. There is, of course, a dignity that comes from being made as an image bearer of God, as a human being. But this dignity is tarnished by sin and is in need of restoration. This means that a person who is not yet saved and part of the family of God is no less worthy of equal treatment and care from the church than a brother or sister. Because that care stems from compassion and kindness, character traits of God, and a moral duty to our fellow man. Or woman, fellow human. But as Anismus was once useless and became useful as a Christian brother, so it is with our relationships. Our usefulness to each other in drawing each other closer to Christ, closer to God, will be proportional to our Christ likeness, to our unity with Him and His body. As our basic humanity and dignity is progressively increased and restored, as that tarnished item is shined, is polished and restored by first our justification, being made right in God's eyes by Christ's death in our place, a legal reality, justified, 
and through the outworking of this, as the ongoing work of sanctification takes place in our lives, temporal, progressive change, as we look forward to eternity, we will become more and more useful, as it were. As Christians, we are not useless. We are useful. And of course, we look forward to that being fully fulfilled when Christ returns and takes us to be with him in glory. We are all different. We all relate differently. We all hear things differently. We all understand things differently. As a result, we need to be ready to live and love in light of our differences. Because this is the church. We are a group of people from different situations in life. Some are single, some are married. Some have children, some do not. Some work, some do not. We're of different ages. We have different ways of dressing. Some have nice hair, some don't. <laughs> some have wear makeup, some don't. Some come from different, uh, some have many different time commitments. Lots of us have different abilities, different financial capacities. One of us might be awkward about one thing or another about ourselves, another about something else. One might be completely comfortable in their own skin. And yet, we come together to share time together, to worship God together as a family, to share a meal and conversation. And you know, possibly even conversation that we don't personally enjoy all the time. But that's not the reason we come. It's not the love of gathering with people that brings us together. That's certainly a value add. It's not shared marital status. It's not shared hobbies. It's not a parenting or playgroup. It's not biological family even. No, what brings us together is Christ. We do not all have the same family, but we are all spiritually connected as the family of God. And despite the uncomfortable, the difficult, and even the embarrassing, we choose to sit and talk and invest in each other, building each other up, encouraging each other in our growing maturity in the Lord. We're a church and we're family. So as we finish with Philemon and Onesimus for today, the stage is set. Paul would now turn to the point of his appeal and seek to facilitate the reconciliation of these brothers. And we'll look to that next week. And so I come back to my opening question. Should familiarity breed contempt within the Christian church? Well, I certainly hope not. Because our focus is on the love that we share in Christ, not on the things we dislike about each other. And we continue with each other, bearing with one another, as we saw in Colossians 3, for the sake of that love. And as we do, as we allow Christ's love to shine out all the more brightly from among us as a result, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, may our light shine before others so that they may see our good works but glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that that would be true for our gathering together. We pray that as people look on and see our relationships restored with you, therefore restored to each other, that they would see you. 
God, would you put our pride to death? Would you help us to put aside the things that hinder us? God, would we be thankful for each other, for the faith that we see worked out in each other's lives? And would that encourage us, embolden us to be a people that love each other as we seek to love you together? To your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.